Let's pray together as we approach this, um, this wonderful text of Scripture. Let's ask God just to prepare our hearts to receive His Word. Pray with me. Father, we just come before You now in this hour, and we're so grateful for Your Son, Jesus. Uh, we sing His hallelujahs because of what He has done. He has done what was impossible through the blood of bulls and goats, but is now possible through His precious blood, the blood of our Redeemer. And so we are infinitely grateful uh, to You for Him. And so we ask, God, that You would magnify to us today the work of Christ, the infinite merit of Christ, and what that means to us in our everyday lives. Let it be, Lord, that we as, um, as His disciples, as Your people, that we would take these covenant realities that are bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that these realities would then turn around and inform and fuel and educate and um, impact the most practical areas of our life. Help us to be students to that end of Scripture. We pray your help now, Lord. I ask that you would help me. Give me a mouth to speak. Speak through my, my, my sermon that I've prepared here, but more importantly, Lord, speak through your word. And by your spirit, let it land on us with prophetic force so that we can benefit from your word as much as possible. Give us both a mouth to speak and ears to hear, and ultimately give us hearts that are receptive and responsive to your life-changing word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, Hebrews, it's been a while since we've been here, and um, I was actually talking with Landon, and he asked me, are you going to survey the book of Hebrews uh, up until this point? And I said, no, that's not really on the program, but, you know, I, I think we need to a little bit. So let's go to chapter one. <laughs> let's kind of catch ourselves back up to speed to understand what it is that the book of Hebrews is setting in front of us. The book of Hebrews is a unique book in the entirety of the Bible for many reasons, but probably the most important reason of all is that the book of Hebrews, in a very unique way, binds the whole book of God together. It takes the, it takes the essence of what God is doing redemptively on planet Earth and it connects that redemption through covenantal lines. So as we go from old to new, testament to testament, people of God to people of God, we have an organic continuity of God's redemptive work. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'm actually going to cite this in the sermon, but um, this is really, and I've said this at the outset, that Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and going all the way down to verse 4, is something of an outline of the whole book. You want to know what the book of Hebrews is about? Master the first four verses of chapter 1. God, that's what Hebrews is about. You see that there on the text? You're looking at the text? God. It begins with that. What a sermon! <laughs> Puts me to shame. I mean, I thought I was trying to be God-centered. His sermon began with God. <laughs> I love it. 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having come, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And really, verse 4 belongs to what is going to be said about the angels, but I include it because it has the operative, all-important uh, term of the whole book of Hebrews, and that is the word better. He is better. And so what happens next is we go on a virtual exposition of Christ's superiority, Christ's supremacy. Jesus is better than angels. Well, basically, verses 1 through 4 are telling us that Jesus is the better revelation. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's revelation throughout all of God's history of revelation, beginning with the fathers down to these last Days And then it moves to tell us that Jesus is superior to the angels. Verse 5, all the way to the end of chapter 2, verse 18. He is better than the angels. Why? Because He is a man. And as a man, He came and He stood in solidarity with us. He is one of us, fully human, fully God, fully man. That is who is redeeming us. And then... The author goes on an exposition to show that Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. And in that sense, he begins to set forth, beginning in chapter 3, he begins to set forth uh, uh, what God is doing in Christ, that it is superior, it is the fulfillment of the law. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at today in chapter 10. And then, of course, The author of Hebrews is going to go on to compare the old covenant people who rebelled and who sinned against the good news that was preached to them. And and so the author of Hebrews says, if you look with me at at chapter 4, it says, For indeed, we have good news preached to us, just as they also did. And it says, But the word that they heard didn't profit them because it was not united by faith. And so that we must unite the gospel with faith. If not, look back at chapter 2. He says, how will we escape? Chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Proof is thousands were laid low in the wilderness. Executed. Judgment. And the author of Hebrews is saying, what has come in Jesus Christ is not out of step with what God did in the wilderness. In fact, it is an intensification of the message that was spoken in the wilderness, so much so that now if you reject the fullness, we could say the flower of redemptive revelation in Jesus Christ, if you reject that amount of light, oh, how great, how terrible the judgment, the wrath. 
And that is because God sent Jesus to be the ultimate high priest. Unlike the Old Testament priests who were mortal men, Jesus' priesthood has its origins in eternity. He follows the trajectory of the Melchizedekian priesthood, and we spend time on Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. I tell you, if people came to church during those months or weeks, they'd have thought we were crazy. All this Melchizedek stuff. It's so important because what it means is that Jesus' priesthood transcends the Levitical priesthood. And it actually means that Jesus' life is indestructible, that his redemption is unalterable because it's bound by God's oath that he swore to uh, have a son that would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Just amazing. And then... In chapter 8, we come into covenantal view with a new covenant. All of this, all of this was in keeping with what God had promised from long ago. From, remember, he says, to the fathers, in the prophets, and now he gives us the prophets. Uh, ch uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, now he quotes directly out of Jeremiah 31 to show us that what Jesus has done, he has done in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. So what happened? We talked about this in uh, Sunday school today. What happened was that the law, the law, the, the Mosaic order, not so much the Ten Commandments as much as the cultists that revolved around it, the sacrificial system, the priesthood. The ritual, the ceremony, the law in that sense. The law, as we pointed out in Sunday school, was spring-loaded with prophecy. Let me, let me explain what this is saying. That the law, uh, the, the economy of Jeremiah that he was under, also had a prophetic element that protected the people of God from being bound to the Mosaic Covenant forever. And it prepares us for the supremacy of the new covenant, a better covenant. Oh, just look at, just look at the chapter 8 here, what he's saying. Beginning in verse 10, he says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach any, everyone else his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, saying, know the Lord. Why? Why don't we need to evangelize one another? For they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Look at verse 12. This is the focus of chapter 10, where we're at. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's where the author of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews chapter 10. The emphasis falls on the power that the new covenant has to cleanse a people for himself and to remit their sins and to remove even the remembrance of sin. Incredible good news! When you look at yourself in light of the law, and when you look at yourself in light of your own sinful past, your own sinfulness, and your own ongoing necessity for progressive sanctification, in other words, the fact that you and I fail all the time, that we're still a mess, were it not for the grace of God. Were it not for the grace of God, there we all go. 
But what this is telling us is the new covenant is such that the grace of God is as solid as the concrete. You can bank on it. You can build your life on it. It is the foundation to everything. We are under the sovereign reign of grace. And that grace, as Titus says, empowers us to live not a godless life, but a holy life. A, a life where our heart freely goes after God in communion with God. Now, let's go back to chapter 10. That okay, Landon? <laughs> no more personal requests. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Let's just read the text again. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For, this is critical, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this passage is describing various aspects of the Old Covenant in the negative, what it could not do, what it was limited by, how it did not perform this. It was, in other words, it was inadequate. It was pointing to something better than itself, and that's the very first thing. So what this passage is giving us is this. Several things that Jesus in the new covenant accomplishes and is seen by the inadequacy and inferiority of the old covenant. First, Jesus brings fullness or reality to the shadows, to the shadows. When the author says that the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of it or the very form of things, he is telling us something of the, the typological and the prophetic nature of the law, the ritual, the ceremony. Let me help you with this. Um, if you get a chance, get on Amazon, uh, pull out the credit card, don't hesitate, don't get permission from the wife, just go on Amazon, buy Alan Ross's book, Commentary on Leviticus, called Holiness to the Lord. And what you will find in that book, very easy to read, it's not very advanced reading, it's actually very, very it's written at a very expository level, it's, it's not above anyone's head. But you just read the Leviticus, uh, the, the commentary on Leviticus there, and what you're doing is you're reading shadow after shadow after shadow after shadow of the good things to come. Every ritual in the book of Leviticus is a shadow preparing us prophetically of the good things to come in the work of Christ. Just another way of saying the book of Leviticus is about Christ. That's right. It's all done in preparation for Christ. The law given after the formal covenant with Abraham was added so that sin would be put in check. That's Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. In other words, it served to govern and to sanctify the covenant people of God as they 
went out of tribal existence into a formal theocracy. The Mosaic Covenant also added a national layer to the covenant structure of the Bible that God's people would become a formal nation, which also has implications for the Son of God, according to um, those texts, Hosea 11.1, 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. But it was all in preparation for yet another covenant arrangement, which was in the Davidic covenant. But what we're, saying, what we're seeing here is that in this verse, we do not have a situation where the Bible is presenting a, a Scripture against Scripture. So when it says that the law says it only has a shadow of the good things to come, it is not saying law bad, gospel good, right? Because we are told in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, we are told that the law is good, righteous, holy. So the author of Hebrews is not trying to disparage the law per se, but in terms of its power to atone. It is inferior, and it only has a symbol, a shadow, a type of the future fullness of the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting thing. You see what the author says here. It only has a shadow of the good things to come, and watch this, not the very form of things. It's just an interesting choice of Greek words there. He uses the word akon which the word literally translated is image. It is the same dynamic as Jesus Christ in the book of Colossians chapter 1 being called the image of the invisible God. In other words, when you want to see what is at the heart of the, of, the, of the divine, of what it means to be deity, of what it means to be God, Jesus is the actual essence, the imaging essence essence of God. That's what it's saying here. That's what the law was portraying. A shadow of the actual manifestation. That's one way you can translate it. The ESV says the true form. Or the NIV, the NIV says the realities themselves. Jesus Christ, His atoning work, that is the reality itself. Now, in order for us to understand what's going on in the Bible... We need to go a bit deeper in terms of shadow versus image, image versus shadow. The Old Testament is casting shadows, Jesus Christ being the very essence of it. But even the Old Testament shadows are overshadowed, if you would, of the previous work of God and His purposes. Let me, um, let me read to you. Uh, Philip Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews, which if you don't have Philip Hughes' commentary, that is a classic. I think if I can only get one commentary on the book of Hebrews, it would probably be Philip E. Hughes. I have found more help from Hughes than any other single commentator out there, I think. This is what he says, speaking about the fact that the old shadows were preceded by the eternal purposes of God so that the full picture is one of the eternal purposes of Christ that become the pattern for the shadow that we will see of Christ in the Old Testament until we arrive at the gospel reality itself. This is what he says 
It is as though within the perspective of God's antecedent purposes, the reality which is Christ casts its shadow forward over the unfolding drama of the preparation of the gospel. That is the, that is the Old Testament preparing us for the gospel. He says, while historically that same reality casts a shadow back over those centuries that lead up to the advent of the Savior, a shadow which received definition in terms of law and priesthood, promise and prophecy. Now, if you've tuned out, listen to this. The true source of this shadow is discovered in the person and work of the incarnate Redeemer. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. Go back to chapter 9, uh, just there. Uh, chapter 9, beginning of verse 23. It says, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, now I, I raise that only to say here you have the introduction of the word copy or tupas, type. It is only a, a type of the things to come. That's referring to the Old Testament. He goes on. Christ did not appear in the holy place made with hands. In other words, he didn't go to a physical tabernacle. He says, but into heaven itself. He says, excuse me, where he says, it is a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. So there you see that the Old Testament tent, the tabernacle, was just a copy, an earthly copy of the heavenly, true tabernacle of God. That is where Jesus went into he didn't get off the cross and go into the earthly temple to offer his blood. Instead, his sacrifice affected the economy of heaven. And the economy of heaven is what is the origin, the genesis of the source of Old Testament shadows and types. It's remarkable. It is remarkable that what we're talking about is that there is an archetype, an original type. The Old Testament shadows become the type. And then the, the, the Christological fulfillment, the antitype of the shadows is actually, watch this now as you watch me move my, shells, my shell game up here. Christ corresponds to the archetype of heaven. That is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is fulfilling not simply the shadows, but he's, he's fulfilling what was set forth in the heavenly reality of God's redemptive purposes. It's just amazing and magnificent to think about. Therefore, again, this changes everything in the way that you read the Bible. This changes everything in how you read the Old Testament. That when you're reading the Old Testament, you are reading about a shadow, a ritual, a type that corresponds to two things, something in heaven and something that would come in Christ. What's happening in the Old Testament corresponds to the pattern that God really uh, uh, der derived from the heavenly, uh, if you would, archetype. Remember, God tells Moses, Moses, be careful. Watch this now. Moses, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. 
If you're reading the Old Testament, you might read that and go, huh, that's interesting. But if you're reading the book of Hebrews and you come, for example, to chapter 8 of Hebrews, same thing where the author is focusing on the copy of the heavenly things, then you have the author of Hebrews making this exact connection back to Exodus. Chapter 8, verse 5, he says that the law, uh, the the priests in, in, in that arrangement serve a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things just as Moses was warned by God, warned by God, it says here. When he was about to erect the tabernacle, see, he said to him, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Now what the author of Hebrews is saying is that pattern is derived from the heavenly things. God is bringing us into His transcendent perspective of redemption, the way that God sees it, not the way that we see it only. Let's say if you were a Jew living in ancient Israel under the Mosaic order and you went to the temple, you went to the tabernacle, you performed the sacrifices, and sitting before you there was the performance of a ritual that was only shadow in nature. And you knew that that had some correlation to a a future Redeemer who would come, a future Lamb of God, a future sacrifice indeed. But what God is saying now is when the people interacted with the shadows and with the types, the heavenly reality, to use Voss's words, hovered over them. They didn't know the fullness of what they were doing. It's just remarkable. And he does this in order to bring us into a state of perfection ultimately through Jesus Christ. So that's the other thing. Not only fullness and reality, but also Jesus brings perfection to his covenant people. Look back to chapter 10, beginning there in verse 1 again, where he says it's only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, watch this now, make perfect those who draw near. The reference to a repetitive offering, a year by year sacrifice, year by year is a dead giveaway that what the author of Hebrews is thinking about is the day of atonement. The Day of Atonement was that annual sacrifice where the whole people of God would have to come and in a corporate dimension be represented before God in that atoning work which only temporarily, externally made the people ceremonially clean. And that is according to Hebrews 9 9 and 10. But why did it all have to happen? I thought, you know what, let me alarm you to the reason why this all had to take place. Deuteronomy 27, 26, now you can go there, I'm going to read it to you, but this is just a cut to the chase, this is why we need Jesus. (laughs) Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, cursed is he who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. All of the people shall say, Amen. Why is God saying the people have to say, Amen? Because this is a covenantal arrangement. 
the stipulations of the covenant are being laid out to the people. And then, as part of the stipulations, the parties must agree. And so God is telling the people of Israel, this is what you do in order to be in covenant with Yahweh. You must add your agreement. You have to add, you have to, it's like telling them to sign their name on the dotted line. Add your amen to the stipulations of the covenant. Because look at what's at stake. Go on. This is one of those places where chapter, chapter breaks are no good. You go into chapter 28. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful, watch this, to do some of His commandments. You awake now? All of His commandments, which I commanded you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. What is at stake in this covenant in the law is infinite blessing from God. Don't you want that? Oh, little Christian books are sold all the time. You know, I walked into because I had to go get this Bible, remember? and I, had, I went and looked at some other Bibles, and I walked in, and all these books on the shelf, pretty little books with pretty little covers, real fancy graphics, you know, promising how to be blessed, how to be blessed, how to be blessed, how to be blessed, how to have a happy Christian life, you know, all of that. I'm just summing it up. Their titles are a little bit more creative than that. But this is telling us how to truly be blessed. Do everything that is required in the law. And in return, you will receive infinite blessing. And then he goes on to say, you'll be blessed in the land, blessed in the house, blessed in the family, blessed in, the post- blessed in your children, blessed in fertility, blessed in, the- blessed in everything. God would bless your socks off if you could do all that is required in the law. You could take over the sermon at this point, right? We can't do that! (laughs) And the children of Israel did not do that. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, it makes it very clear. The law, and the point here in chapter 10 is, the law can't make you do it. It doesn't give you the power to do it. The sacrifices don't empower the the worshiper to be perfect before God. It 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 is impotent. We need a greater offering. Now go back to Hebrews chapter one, verse uh, Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse one again, or that whole section there, because I just want to point out something of what happened in the 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 work of Christ on the cross, His work of atonement, His work of redemption. As 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 um, there's a reason why uh, Jesus on the cross in John in John uh, twenty says um, it is finished. It's the first time a priest ever said, it is finished. And Hebrews helps us here, because look at verse 3 at the end here. It says, when he made a purification of sins, watch this now, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why isn't it enough to say he sat down? Why isn't it enough to say that he was at the right hand of God? Why do we have to have he sat down at the right hand of God? Because two dynamics are at work. Number one, he sat down as a symbol that the work of redemption was accomplished. 
finished. And where he sits, namely at the right hand of God the Father, means that his redemptive work is not only accomplished, it is accepted. God confirms the work by sitting his son at his right hand and saying, it's done. It is the opposite of what the law could not do. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice was perfectly efficacious. It perfectly provides cleansing and power and perfection and cleansing of conscience. That's what it does. It takes away the wrath of God. It removes the, the reminder of sin. Just amazing what the new covenant does. In the new covenant, our conscience has been cleansed. You ever have a guilty conscience? It's okay if you say, I know you're a Christian and you're supposed to have a clean conscience, but you ever have a guilty conscience as a Christian? Right? So then that is not what this is talking about. It doesn't mean Christians never have a guilty conscience. The consciousness of sin is cultic in nature. What do I mean by that? What it means is that ceremonially, the whole people of God understand that they are yet guilty of their sins and incapable to draw near to God. And so the weight the consciousness of the sin separated the people. As a matter of fact, the more that they did the Day of Atonement, the more they brought their sacrifices year by year. As it goes on to say here, look at verse 3, but in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins. So every year, all children of Israel, Leviticus 23, are brought together and are forced to see the terrible demands of the law. And their consciences are laid heavy with a sense of their guilt and, their, and the fact that the presence of God is inaccessible to them in their present condition. This is not to say that individuals within the covenant did not, in fact, have justified uh, uh, souls, that they were not saved by grace. They were. And let me, let me bring this up here as a point of theology for our church. What we believe in our church is that there is one program of salvation that, uh, that man it, it, throughout covenantal lines is saved in only one fashion. And that is by grace, through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and leave everything else alone. There are not two programs of salvation, one for the old, one for the new, so that you can be something like a, like a, like a soteriological monstrosity, Arminian in the Old Testament, Calvinist in the... No, 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 no. No. The Bible presents one faith, right? The faith uh, once for all delivered to the saints. There's just one faith. That's it. One faith. Is there one Lord, Jesus Christ? Then there's one faith says Paul in Ephesians. There's only one. So I believe the whole process of salvation uh, is the same in both covenantal economies. Uh, you remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus about the new birth. He says, 
Aren't you the teacher of all Israel? Don't you understand these things by now? The new birth is not something invented in the New Testament, folks. The new birth comes from places like Ezekiel uh, 37 and in other places. I think the new birth is implied whenever Moses speaks about having a circumcised heart. The new birth, so that, so that in, in Old and New Testaments, you are regenerated, you are, you are uh, justified, you, you, you repent and you believe, you are justified, you are adopted, and then you begin, and you, are, you begin the process of progressive sanctification. It all happens in the same way across covenant lines. But on a corporate level, that is what is missing. All of the people of God could not... Say what Jeremiah says, that everyone knows the Lord. You can say that in the Old Covenant. You say that in the New Covenant because you can't get into the New Covenant if you are not in in union with Christ. It's that simple. So last thing, Jesus, therefore, not only brings fullness, Jesus, therefore, not only does He... uh, does he bring perfection to the people of God? But he brings the final sacrifice of sins. And this is important because what Jesus has done is he has conquered the power of sin and the reminder of sin. You know, the word that's used here, reminder of sin, is actually the word uh, for memorial. And it's the same word that, that Jesus uses uh, in, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you a question. If you celebrate the Lord's Supper, when you take the elements into your hands, the cup, the bread, are you condemned by your sin? Should not be. The cup and the bread, unlike the Day of Atonement, is a memorial of the sin-destroying, hell-overcoming power of the cross. That's why in Corinthians, it's a celebration. It is not to stir up in you guilt and the condemnation of your formal formal sinful state, your formal sinful consciousness. So if you take the cup, you you take the bread into your hands, and the only thing that you think about is that you are condemned before God, you have to ask yourself, are you in the new covenant? Because those elements you hold in your hand are meant to grant to you victory. They symbolize perfect atonement, a perfect redemption, perfect propitiation, taking away the remembrance of sin, the power of sin. Let's finish here quickly by going to Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 2. There we're told something of the practical aspects of this if we meditate on what Jesus has done for us in the new covenant by perfecting the worshiper, cleansing our conscience. He did this in order to set us free from the power and the terror of the law. Colossians chapter 2, beginning of verse 13. It's a, it's a parallel to Ephesians chapter 2. You know Ephesians chapter 2. You, we, we, you were once dead in trespasses and sins, starts the same way. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, watch this, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. That's exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says. 
having forgiven us all our transgressions. What does that mean, folks? All of your transgressions up to this day? All of your transgressions for now? What about your transgressions that you'll commit tomorrow or next week or next year? What about those transgressions? No. It is the forgiveness of past, present, and future sin. I know it sounds too good to be true. But have you ever heard of the gospel? Good news. Next week when I sin, and oh, I hate to sin, I am not lost. I am not going to perish because somebody cut me off on the freeway and I responded in the way that I shouldn't have responded. You got impatient with your spouse, with your children. Whatever it may be, the atoning work of Christ secures our forgiveness. Look at verse 14. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us. That is just a way of speaking about the law and the specifics of the law, which was hostile toward us. Wow. The law was threatening us before we were in Christ. He says, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 15, When He had disarmed the ruler's and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. It was through the cross that Jesus took the sting of the devil and the demons of hell away. What are the, what's the devil and the demons of hell have to do with anything? Oh, if you had special lenses to see and peer into the spiritual realm you would probably drop dead in your seat. Jesus gives us a little glimpse of this when He says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. If God... If Jesus fails in His intercession, we would be devoured by the devil. It is on the principle of an indestructible life that we walk in confidence with God. And the foe, our foe has been defeated. The sting of death has been removed. It's glorious. And so what is the result of all of this? Having had our conscience cleansed, having had our sin forgiven, now what? Walk in newness of life. It is not a license for sin. It is a calling to live and to live under the reign of grace, which is holiness above everything else. And so, our whole Christian life, our whole life lived is one, uh, is one uh, attempt to conform to the holiness of God. Turn with me to uh, Peter, 1 Peter 
1 Peter chapter 1 to show you this. Because our sanctification also corresponds to the Old Covenant, right? The standard of holiness for God has not gone down. It is constant. Look at what happens here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, thir- verse uh, uh, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you in the new covenant, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is why Jesus became the propitiation of our sin. This is why Jesus became our redemption, became our sanctification. This is why Jesus became our righteousness, so that we would be holy, that we would walk in a holy communion bond with the God with whom we are now in covenant. That is what the redemptive supremacy of Jesus in the new covenant is all about. Father, Lord, we pray to that end today that you would, by your grace and for your glory, that you would transform us as we look at all of these new covenant realities, the blessings, the, just the, the power of it all, the, the wonder of it all, the glory of it all. And as we think of it all, we pray that that would only result in one thing, and that is a holy life. Oh, God, we thank you for Jesus. We know that in of ourselves... We are dust and ashes. In and of ourselves, we are found wanting. We lack the righteous necessary to be cleansed and to have a pure conscience before God. But in Christ, we are complete and we are cleansed in Him. And so, Lord, we pray, help us. Help us. When life gets going, when life gets complicated, when we underestimate our sinfulness and things get out of hand to come back to the new covenant realities in which we stand so that in them we would walk. In Jesus' name, amen.